ways that a church should be to be healthy, faithful to Christ, the gospel, in the community. Uh, sometimes the ideas are a little overwhelming. There's just so much to be said and so many opinions. But here, uh, we will look at three simple, uh, by no means am I saying it's exhaustive, uh, but three simple principles, three simple aspects or pictures of what a healthy church should be. That we do eat food, we, we sing songs, and then we do this other thing. We slay the dragon. Simple. But it's an overflow of joy from life in Christ is where this comes. Now, um, if you were to meet somebody maybe at the park or um, maybe at the gross, grocery store or whatnot, and they said, you know, what's that, that church new life? What's new life like? Um, you could answer in a lot of different ways. My hope maybe after a sermon series like this is you, you simply answer, well, we, we eat food, um, and we sing songs up there sometimes, and uh, sometimes we slay a dragon. And, and, then, and then naturally that would just produce a, an amazing conversation. I've never forgotten again. Uh, the person might say something, well, well that's, that's, an odd, that's an odd mix of um, a lot of things there, particularly the last one. It seems fun and joyful and music and, and, and food and and then a little, a little bit of dramatic and exciting, slaying dragons. Do you do that on a, you know, at your church, do you do that on a Wednesday or a Thursday? When exactly do you slay dragons? Uh, and then, because and then, you might say, well, because the person you're talking to might say, well, I have a uh, softball league. It's really competitive on Wednesdays, so I couldn't be part of your church slaying dragons. If you slay dragons on Wednesdays, I couldn't really make that happen. But what does it mean to slay a dragon? Um, that's what I hope to see in the sermon. Because that is a beautiful uh, chain of three freeze shots, images of the church, of the gospel, of, of the actual plan of salvation that God has ordered through the church. Uh, of course, when we get to the dragon, we'll be spending some time in Revelation. And it'll be an amazing uh, short series uh, through this. The fact is, today, as we look at eating food, uh, Jesus ate food. And it, we're not really concerned so much today with the fact that he ate food, we're more concerned with the fact of how he ate food, why he ate food. In Luke's gospel, a biblical commentator sums it up this way and says, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming home from a meal. All of Luke's gospel is full of Jesus eating. He had a food ministry, you could say. Then I know that some of you are thinking immediately that this is now finally a ministry that I can get behind. <laughs> eating food. You're like, I'm, I'm good at eating food. I've, I'm really good at eating. I, I've been eating my whole life. God's prepared me for this. It is your calling. This is your ministerial calling. You've been prepared for a day to eat food for the glory of God. And so I hope to unravel that uh, through a sermon series such as this. To prove my point... You'll see here in Luke uh, 5, as we begin, <clears throat> sorry about that, um, Jesus has a dinner uh, with a man named Levi. And let's read that this morning. Luke 5, verse 17. Before that, he'll do this miracle, and they are linked, so we'll go backwards a little bit before we get to the meal with Levi. On one of those days, he was teaching. Uh, as he was teaching, 
Pharisees and teachers, um, teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village in Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went on, they went up on top of the roof to let him down uh, with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this one who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who is paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose before them and picked up, uh, and picked up what he had been laying on and went home, glorifying God. And it says that amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repent. And this is Jesus' meal with Levi. This is how Jesus ate food. And it's true in Luke's gospel, if we were to step back and look at the whole thing, we find here in Luke 5, Jesus eating food with Levi and all of his other sinner tax collector friends, which is a beautiful image on actually how to do evangelism. It's not always so programmatic to say we're going to hold an event and maybe people will come into the church because people just love coming to church for no reason at all, says nobody. Go to them and befriend them and be in their group and actually don't treat them as a project, but befriend them as people. That's what Jesus did. Well then, next chapter, Luke 6 He's eating heads of grain with his disciples. Luke 7, um, he has a reputation. It says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and now they say he is a glutton, a friend of sinners and tax collectors. That is, Jesus ate so much food that people accused him of gluttony. Okay, that was his reputation. Right? Now, obviously that's not true, but there had to be an element of truth for that accusation to even have any merit. 
This was his manner of life. This is how he demonstrated his ministry. He would just eat with sinners and tax collectors. So much so that it bothered them so much they had to try to defame him. In Luke 7, 36, we have the Pharisees inviting Jesus to eat at Simon's house. In Luke 9, Jesus feeds 5,000 people. In Luke 14, he speaks about the banquet meal of the Lord, a big feast of food, which he likens to absolute salvation. Luke 14 is that banquet meal. Then Luke 15, he has sinners. We're told 15 too. Sinners drew near to eat with him. They would draw near to him just to have food with Jesus. In Luke 17, Jesus likens faith to serving a man, a meal, as a slave. In Luke 19, Jesus invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus claims to be interested in talking to Jesus, and Jesus, having no decorum for politeness, just said, I'm coming to your house to eat. What do you have to eat? I'm coming over. That's how Jesus was. This was his ministry, eating food with people. Luke 19 is where Jesus invites himself to Zacchaeus. Luke 22 is this, the Last Supper. Before he departs with his disciples, he eats with them. Luke 24, he resurrects from the dead, meets his disciples again on the road to Emmaus, and they can't recognize him at all, and he speaks with them for a long time until they get to the very end, and he breaks bread in front of them. And they recognize this is Jesus. And he vanishes. And the very end of Luke's gospel, he appears to his disciples again. And they're scared. They're petrified. And they don't believe that he's real. They think he's a vision or a ghost or a spirit. And one of the last things he says in the whole gospel is, do you have any broiled fish? And he eats it in front of them and shows them, I am. I am him. This is Jesus' ministry. It is something we should at least consider to realize that when we say, let's eat food, it is as fun and as simple and jovial as that because there's joy in salvation in Christ. This is an evidence of a truly healthy church, of people who actually care about each other and love one another. But it's more than that. It's actually serious. As we just laid out, this is not just one simple topic. This is actually a method. This is, if there was anything... Jesus didn't do VBSs. He didn't do a lot of stuff. But he did do this. Programs are great, but this is kind of a big deal when you have only four Gospels and one of them is almost Jesus eating on every page. (laughs) What, What is this? Should this not be something we consider as a church about our DNA, who we are, our culture, our life, our witness to the world? For really, it's not about food. And of course, we know that. That's somewhat of the humor behind it. It's about hospitality. It's about companionship. Companion. It's two Latin words. Com is together. Panis is bread. Companionship. Together with bread. He is a friend. He is a friend of sinners. He is hospitable. He is approachable. He is humble. He is meek. He is mild. He is riding on a donkey. There's something about the table. There's something about sitting across the table from Jesus that we should consider a model of our life, 
a way of our living, a way of our relating to others to show the love of Jesus Christ in this world. And so what we have here is a story of two events that are in some way related and in some way not related. They are one completely extraordinary and one pretty average ordinary. You have the extraordinary event, the interaction of Jesus with this paralyzed man. He heals them. This man is paralyzed. He cannot walk and now he can walk. And everyone there is amazed, they say. They, they were seized by all of them, were seized by the glory of God. It filled their hearts. They were in awe, the text says. In the last verse, they remark about the encounter with Jesus and this paralyzed man. We're told, we have seen extraordinary things today. Extraordinary things today. That's it. Then immediately we transition into Jesus having a dinner with a bunch of tax collectors. One extremely, incredibly extraordinary and one seemingly very ordinary. And both of these encounters result with a question. The first question was, who is this man who can blaspheme like this? No one. Who can forgive sins but God? So he came to the paralytic man and said, your sins are forgiven. And the reverse question from the dinner, this ordinary encounter was, why do you eat with sinners and tax collectors? Both interesting questions. And they all have one similar answer. Because Jesus is God, and he can forgive sin. And because he can forgive sin, he will eat with sinners so that he might forgive them. One's very extraordinary, one's very ordinary. See, the problem of sickness, the problem of the sickness, for example, this paralyzed man, is only found in one solution, which is in proximity to Jesus, association with Jesus. So the problem of sickness has to do with sin. And that connection isn't always clearly made, except for when Christ draws it out implicitly by the way he approached the healing of this man. This man comes. They are in Galilee, evidently in some type of building where there's a very large crowd. The door is blocked off. There's people in the living room or whatever. And all the way out, Jesus is doing interesting things. And people want to find out. But there's one man who is absolutely paralyzed. And he has some faithful friends who put him on a cot and try to carry him through. But they can't make it. So they climbed up on top of the roof. Broke through the roof. Came down in the ceiling. And put him there at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus, seeing this, the text says, he saw their faith. And his immediate response after seeing their genuine faith in him was, your sins are forgiven. That their faith produced a forgiveness of sin. Faith in Christ predicates forgiveness of sin. And forgiveness of sin, presumably from the interaction, can actually result in a healing of the body. Therefore, the sin and the sickness are connected. There is a corruption in this world, a corruption in the creation, a corruption in our very own body, a corruption in our very own mind, because of one primary corruption, which is the corruption of sin. But it was the faith they needed to get close to Jesus. They in some way viewed Jesus as being something more than just a teacher, someone who had to be 
trusted in. Someone, it was worth ripping open a roof to climb into his ceiling because this was a big deal. Jesus was that man. And seeing their faith, realizing that true saving faith is not lip service. If you would not rip open a roof to find Jesus, let alone bow on your knees to confess your sins, then you don't even believe in him the way this text describes. You don't even believe in who he really is. But Jesus, seeing their faith, said their sins are forgiven. James says in James 2, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from works and I will show you my faith by my works. That's true living faith. Faith that actually lives for Christ. And so what follows is an absolution where Jesus simply declares, man, your sins are forgiven. And Romans lays out the reason why. Why were his sins really forgiven? In Romans 3, 23, 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation, a covering over of anger. That's what propitiation is. He put Jesus forward in front of you before the wrath of God. A propitiation by his blood. That's why it had to be blood. It had to soak up God's anger over you for all of your sin. It was a propitiation by his blood. To be received how? To be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, his absolute moral perfection and goodness. Because in his divine forbearance of not destroying the whole world seven times over, he has passed over all of our former sins. It was to show his righteousness in the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. So when they ripped open that roof, And came to find Christ. And he could see their faith. He responded by seeing their faith. By saying, your sins are forgiven. You are trusting in me in such a way. That when I go to that cross in only a few years from now. My blood falls on your head. And you are cleansed. And they, Pharisees. And the teachers of the law who have no conception of this cannot see Jesus for who he is and no way anticipate that their own corruption or um, conspiring in order to bring his death was the actual act that brought this forgiveness they complain of. They sought to kill Jesus and in killing Jesus, this man's sins were gone. And they question why. How can you forgive sin? In Romans 3, as you just laid out, that's exactly why he can forgive sin. Because his blood was a propitiation to soak up the wrath of God so that he might be just and the justifier. God holds his holy righteous standard of judgment. Holiness has not been compromised in one millimeter because all that holiness was upheld in the justful wrath, wrathful destruction of Jesus. So no one got out of here just because God winked at you. No one got out of God's wrath just because he let you go with a little pat on your butt like you're treating a little small child. You deserve to die in hell. So do I. And the only way you don't go there is because Jesus went there for you. So therefore, God can justify you and still maintain his own justice that he's not a corrupt judge who lets sinners go. Just and the justifier of all who have faith in Jesus Christ. So when they ripped open that roof, that faith washed away all their sins because they put their life in Christ. It was sufficient enough. And so it follows from that was the very first question. 
Who can forgive sins but God? Making a connection that there is a sickness and a sin, a sin body problem. Sin severs unity from God. A paralytic person has a severed unity of spine. Jesus here is claiming power to unite both. He unites the broken spine. And then he also says, by the way, God and you, I'll put you back. And then they all balk. Your sins are forgiven. Who do you think you are? You're going to forgive his sins. And then Jesus does the beautiful thing. Well, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or get up and walk? So that you might know that the Son of Man has power and authority to forgive sins. Rise, take up your bed and go home. And the man rose, took up his bed and went home. See the reason. And everyone pauses and says, wow. And the moment in the room, they're thinking, what was this? This was extraordinary. I could go to a Catholic priest today. Well, not really, because I'm an ordained PCA minister. But if I was a part of a, a, a Catholic church, he could go and give me an absolution. He could say, your sins are forgiven. And I could say, are you sure? Like, how many beats do I have to pray yet? Like, how do you really know? How do you really know my sins are forgiven? It's so easy to say your sins are forgiven. Because sin is not seen. Not, no, no one even knows they're under the wrath of God. It's so easy to say your sins are forgiven. It's quite the opposite to say walk when you can't walk. The reality here Jesus is saying, the reality here of what Jesus is saying is that it is connected. This paralysis is plainly evident and dis- demonstrable. That there was something that happened. For sin is like love. It's like logic. It's like forgiveness. You can't see it. It's real. There is love. But where is love? You can only see demonstrations of love. I can't go get love out of a drawer for you and show it to you. Where's logic? I can show you a syllogism. But I can't like explain the contrary law of non-contradiction. I can't. I, I don't know why that works in China and India and America. I don't know what it is about the un, u, the university of universality of our logical thinking. It's it's, it's a non-material thing that's just there. You have to deal with it, and so is math. But it's just there. I can show you demonstrations of math. I can show you demonstrations of forgiveness. But I can't. I can't show you forgiveness. And so how do you know you're really forgiven? God has to do that to you. No one can declare that on you. And they know that. God can only say that. Who's going to say, like some maybe Catholic priests might, definitely will, you're forgiven. How do you know that? Only God could say that. There has to be an inner working that only God can touch. You only can really know you're forgiven. If God declares you forgiven. That is why in Romans 8, Paul speaks of justification as a forensic legal act wrought by the Spirit of God in which though heaven and earth and all creatures would declare you not to be just. God declares you just and you know that because he has wrought it upon your heart. And only God could say that thing. And here Jesus is doing the same. And they are awestruck. They are amazed that this man who could not walk 
was walking. Which is easier to say. The word there they say, for amazed. We have seen extraordinary, the word extraordinary things today is paradoxa. We get the word, you can hear paradox. It's the idea of contrary beliefs, contrary knowledge. You have two facts, two things that you hold true, and they smash into each other. That's called a paradox. Paradoxa. It is extraordinary. It is it pauses you. It, it alters the, the chemistry of your brain. You don't have categories to put in what you just saw. There is some information that you are not aware of. Why should a paralyzed man walk? Why should sinners be forgiven? And the only unity, the locus, the logos, of why that would ever make sense, Jesus. There had to be a new category added to the brains that day. That there is a man named Jesus. He can unite the spine Men that don't walk, start walking. How does that work? Sinners that deserve to die and be separated from the good, gracious presence of God forever are brought to be with God forever. How does that? That is a paradoxa. The only resolution, the synthesis, Christ. Reunites all things in heaven and earth. As we read last week in Ephesians. Spines and sinners. And everything between. All heaven and earth will be united to Christ. And here he is demonstrating the pre-senses, the tastes of the new heavens and new earth. He's bringing it together in his very presence as the Logos walks among us. He's the logical unity of it all. The ordinary then follows this extraordinary event. The ordinary. He goes and does something after an absolute miracle... He goes and just has a meal. And that's kind of more where you and I come in. We think, well, what is this? This ordinary event following such an extraordinary miracle. We're told that he eats uh, with a man named Levi, whose other name is Matthew, who wrote the first gospel that we have by his name. He calls him, we're told. He left everything and followed him. He rose. And we're told that he made a great feast for Jesus in his home. So realize this, and we'll play on this later. The paralyzed man was told to pick up his mat, rise, pick up his mat, and go home. And we're told he went home praising God. He went home. The next one, Jesus goes into someone else's home. But this is ordinary. So Levi opens up his home. And he has a large banquet, a great feast, and a large company of all his other sinners. Beautiful. It's like Jesus is almost wise. He knows what he's doing. He goes into his house and says, now you invite all your friends and let me speak to them about my love and grace. And so here he is. And these tax collectors, of course, hated their sinners, notorious in Scripture, because what they do is they cheat out the Jewish people that they are most likely ethnic of, especially Matthew. And so it's not just like, see, it's not just they're cheating them financially or you're ta- they're taxing a little heavy uh, the people around them and everyone hates them because they know they're making a lot of money. He has a great house. He can hold a great feast in his home. 
He's doing well. He's a tax collector. He, the Roman law always allowed them to take off as much as they wanted. There was no, no, no real laws to that. As long as Rome got their tax, the tax collector could take his surplus as any he desired before they would stone him or get really angry. He played that line, and they were not liked for that. So it's not just that. It's actually more. When we say tax collectors and sinners in Scripture, we're saying those who reject the one true God of Israel. Because the whole idea of Roman occupation of Israel is a pagan kingdom, Rome, worshipping pagan gods, not Yahweh, has controlled this land. And these Jews, these men who are identified with Yahweh in the covenant community of Yahweh, have said, I don't really care. I don't care about Yahweh anymore. Rome's the big power. I'm just going to go collect taxes for them and get my fair share. So it's not just financial corruption. It is apostasy. It is, it is absolute sin in the rejection of the one true God. So when they say tax collectors and sinners, it is a very religious sin they're committing. Very religious sin they're committing by being tax collectors for pagan occupa- occupation of Rome. And they're all here with Jesus. And the second question now comes. This question is, the Pharisees come up shoulder to shoulder with his disciples and grumble and they say, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? You are part of a disciple movement. Jesus, your, your disciple maker, Jesus, is claiming to be a, a, a religious figure, a, a teacher of the Jews. Yet you, as a, because there were many Jewish teachers in the day, and they always traveled around, just like Jesus, very similar to what he did with his 12. They would always follow around. There was no universities or schools at the time. That's how you were educated. You found a rabbi. You found a sage. You stayed with him the rest of your life until you became a sage, and you trained up people. So there was no, you know, university or formal education system. This is how it was done. And so it'd be like one university ruining its reputation with all the other universities. That the University of Jesus, we would say, the College of Jesus, is identifying with pagan worshippers and tax collectors. And so so it'd be, it would not really fit your um, business model if you wanted to get new recruits next school year uh, to say that we identify with those who are heretics and actually reject the one true God of, of, the, uh, the, uh, of the Old Testament that we teach wouldn't be a good business model if you were trying to run a college. But Jesus is actually trying to save sinners. He's not doing that. Uh, so that's a difference there we, we miss entirely from historical context. And so the question really comes at us again where they say, why are you doing this? He's, the, he's claiming to be a rabbi. You're claiming to be a disciple. But you're discrediting yourself entirely with all reputable Jewish education. You're associating with those who finance pagan cults. Yet you claim to have authoritative exposition of the words of Yahweh. You can't have both of these. And Jesus said, just watch me. This is exactly what I'm going to do. Because his answer is beautiful. His answer is beautiful. And the question for us would be, why why do followers of Jesus eat uh, with sinners? The, The answer is, because Jesus is eating with sinners. That's why he comes up to the disciples and says, why are you eating with sinners? Well, because the one I'm following, my master, Jesus, he decided to do this. His idea, not mine, but we're doing it. We're eating with sinners. That's the answer. So the question for us is, why do we eat with sinners? Or the follow-up prerequisite question is, do you eat with sinners? Do you eat with sinners? I mean, really, is that actually a part of our life? Like, do we not just, like, in some way identify with people at work who don't know Christ, who don't love Christ, but, I mean, do you 
hours, have them at your house. Over and over, neighbors that you've known for years. That you're there, eight, nine o'clock, just treating them to food and, and loving them and sharing stories and anecdotes and life. And, not, and in no way would they see that this is a thing. This is a project. This is your life. You let them into your house. They see you and know you for who you are. You're not trying to get them out on anything. You're not trying to invite them to church. You're not even pushing the gospel so hard until you feel them and see them and know what they're saying. And then you bring Christ to them in that context. There has to be a place for that. Because that is how Jesus did it. The, the physician of the soul. The answer to the question is, it's those who are well, who have no need of a physician. Jesus answers their question. Why are you doing this? Why are you eating with them? It's those who are sick that need a physician. And he says, I have not come to call the righteous. I have come to call sinners. It's a straight answer. I have not come to start a Jewish university. I have come to call sinners. I have not come to start a movement. I have come to save the world. I have not come to start a church program. I have come to love souls. Many who don't know Jesus will say something like, I don't have enough evidence. It's remarkable that someone would raise their high hand against God and say, unless he would do X, Y, and Z, I could not believe him. Or he doesn't reveal himself to me now in this way that I prefer, I will not believe him. They're self-confident usually in this doubt because of their own moral righteous indignation that God would not meet them at their standards and their ways. Proud, self-assured, poised in all of their ways, but never one thing they lack. The ones who complain that they'd never seen Jesus. They always end up not seeing their own sin either. They're not humble and broken and crying over their adultery, jealousy or envy or anger, sexual lust or perversion. They're not really worried about all these things. But they're really interested in saying, I can't believe in Jesus or this gospel or God. There's not enough here. I can't see it. And the answer to that is, exactly. Jesus didn't come for you. He came for sinners. If you're not a sinner, he's not coming for you. You won't see him. He won't reveal himself to you. He's coming for sinners. Therefore, if we confess our sin, if we humble ourselves and approach the Lord, we are told clearly in James 4, God is opposed to the proud. He will keep all of those people looking for X, Y, Z and some proof and some reason. He'll keep them all at arm's length, self-righteous in their own ways, and let them be there thinking they can't find him or see him because he's not looking to be found by them. There are two people here. You have Levi and you have the Pharisees. Levi sees Jesus. Levi sees something. He left it all. He knows something more about Jesus than these Pharisees. He left everything behind to go have dinner with Jesus. To eat with Jesus. The Pharisees see none of that. 
They're self-righteous in their ways. They have no conception of their own real moral desperation and sin. And so Jesus' biting irony to their answer is, yes, I came for sinners unlike you. For you obviously are not a sinner. You're the most righteous person in all Israel. And they never eat with Jesus like all those tax collectors did. The gospel call to repent and believe has always been this way. Repent and trust, commit, submit ourselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And he will reveal himself. And that calling, that gospel call is here. And in closing, a a gospel call, particularly a call, an invitation, a dinner invitation, is very much what like the gospel call of Jesus Christ is. See, godless pagans, and that is in the Roman context, saw the whole world in much more like a ladder. And Christians, Christians who are transformed by the gospel, see the world like a table. A ladder has many pegs. It's hierarchical. It's vertical. It's morally and socially stratified. And that's the genesis of this question. Why would you eat with these people? But the gospel, the Christian, sees the world as just full of tables. A table is a big board that's level. It's low. It's a flat plain. It's humble. It has a horizon. Kings and slaves can sit at the same table and look each other in the eye. This is how Jesus did ministry. Around a table. For many years... I worked as a paramedic, and um, I saw a lot of people, and and sometimes in that work, there would be serious emergencies and things that needed to be done and done quickly. But a lot of the times, it wasn't always that. Um, Many of the people I would see just simply would call because they didn't have a car. Uh, People that are uh, lonely. And they fake a disease so that someone would act like they care about them. Uh, Many people uh, would just have to be picked up because they can't stop drinking. They drink themselves to the floor and the family calls. Or people that can't stop putting a needle in their arm. They just can't stop it and they're unconscious. Um, People who have no teeth. Oftentimes there are people uh, who would smell like animals. They're just filthy, dirty. Life is completely broken and disheveled. Um, people I would work with, other paramedics, would, would just, they, they wanted to do good. They wanted to be there when there was real need. And they saw all this as fluff. It's annoying. It's very pharisaical in that environment because it was all a, a druggie. Or a person like this again. Oh, this is the third time they called this week. That person's not sick. They're just lonely. Ah. Remember one time in the ER... The doctor was complaining because the person obviously wouldn't have insurance to pay for this. Which is true. But this is the way we think. But then there were this ordinariness of the day. The job. It would be nothing more than just the paramedics or the doctors, whoever had the patient, just did the right thing. Took him, picked him up, gave him the meds, treated him, filled out their paperwork, sent him along the way, and went home. Never to see those people again. And these are the people. These are people. And there was much of us and them dynamic there. 
It was like when Jesus healed that man and said, pick up your bed and just go home. It was almost like that, like a clinical kind of physician healing a man who had a spinal surgery. Now go home. Now that would be ordinary. The, the miracle was extraordinary. The interaction was almost ordinary. Like Jesus is this great master. He has spiritual power. He can speak your healing. He fixes you and you go home. You take your pills and your script and you go home. And he goes to his place because you, you're really not the same. Do you see? It'd be very weird for a, a medical doctor, professional, successful, developed, upper middle class medical doctor to finish his shift and then go and actually spend time with all the druggies and the drunks for dinner and sit with them. And not because like a charity thing, like because they're his friends and he's enjoying time with them. Like he's laughing with them and this is, this is him being with them. Because the moral um, disparity between a successful doctor and a strung out druggie is only millimeters of a chasm between us and Christ. Do you see? Do you see how the second part ties into all of this? And here is Jesus. Look at this man who eats with sinners. This good doctor, yes, can heal a paralytic in his office hours. And he has, of course, moral virtue and there is much fame and it demonstrates his extraordinary power and wisdom and authority to do such a thing. But what does he have to gain to go and sit now with sinners and tax collectors? After hours, did the miracle, fine. But there's nothing to gain here. It ruins his reputation. It destroys his rabbinic status. There's nothing miraculous. He's not doing miracles. It's not like people were seeing him for something remarkable or glorious. When he healed the paralytic man, everyone was awestruck, inspired. Here, when he sits there with tax collectors, they side-eye him and say, who is this? What is, his, what is he doing? And that is the real extraordinary thing. That's the gospel. That that actually is God just loving you because he loves you. That the idea that he would come from so high and come down so low and sit there at the same table, the same level playing field with all of these men, with you and me, if he could invite us to his table, could not anybody be invited to ours? If he could invite you to his table to eat his food, could not anyone eat your food? If he is a friend of sinners and tax collectors, should this church not be a place for sinners? Should this table not be a place for sinners? And we present this from all the other tables that go out from among us. That if you find the table here as someone from new life, you will find a table that is level and flat. For we all are lowered and humbled in our sin before a holy God. This this is Jesus' ministry. And the real miracle of it all would be someday if someone were to ask you, you know you're doing it right this way. If someday you get the question, why do you eat the way that you do? Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for eating with us for lowering yourself to actually sit at the table with us. We do not deserve this, Lord. There's very little difference between us and one another, but there's a chasm, a world, a cosmos of holiness separating us from you. And you had nothing to gain except for your own love and glory to love us, Lord. Lord, we pray that you would in our hearts transform that to be a reality, 
And let that therefore be a way we live, that we would eat food. Lord Jesus, like you ate food. Amen.